The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Before we go any further, the, the way I want to start, we'll do the scripture reading throughout the course of the message rather than doing it all at the beginning. And that's kind of been my pattern through this series in Jeremiah. But before we do that, we're going to take a look at this uh, brief video and then we'll go on, okay? It's kind of a lighthearted look at what I think is actually a pretty weighty issue. Um, is there really anything distinctive about the church today in America? Um, I think what this little sketch was trying to addresses the fact that quite often it feels like the church, the people of God, we are taking our cues more from the broader culture around us rather than from the instruction that we find in God's own word. Why is it that our values and our sensibilities often seem almost indistinguishable from that of the world? Our entertainment habits, our spending habits, our definition of success and happiness, our goals and our dreams for our children. I mean, this is not just a gut-level feeling that we have, but the statistics bear it out. That in many ways, the church and the world are indistinguishable when we're measured on these metrics. In the midst of all of that comedy in the sketch we just watched was this really poignant line, I think that was very powerful, when the pastor said, I don't understand why you would imitate a culture that we're supposed to be against, you know? And, and it's, it's really, I think, probably the most important line in that little skit. In our desire to be relevant and accepted by the world, it seems that maybe we've lost our sense of what it means to be God's holy people, a people that are set aside for his purposes in our generation. Uh, the Israelites, I would argue, also struggled with that same desire to fit in with the broader culture around them. Uh, it's interesting, uh, God said to the Israelites, I am your father, I am your king, I will lead you, I will shepherd you. And yet for the Israelites, that was just too weird, it was too abstract, it was too uncomfortable. Following this invisible God who they couldn't see with their own eyes and the mystery of it all and all the weird things that God would do to them. And so they began to protest through uh, his servant Samuel, the prophet, and they said, we don't like this arrangement where you say our, God is, our king is God in heaven. And so they said, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a human king like everybody else gets. And then through the prophet Samuel, God told them, he said, if I give you an earthly king, you're not going to like it because he's going to abuse you and take advantage of you and basically use you for his own purposes selfishly rather than me as your king who gives to you and serves you and loves you. But they would have none of it, and they insisted, no, give us an earthly king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 to 20, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And so despite God's warnings, the Israelites rejected God as their king and they insisted on a human king so that they could be just like the other nations. 
As we fast forward in the history of Israel to the time of Jeremiah, when God looked at the Israelites, he saw a people that had lost their identity, ones who no longer understood what it meant to be his holy people set apart for him. And so to show them how far that they had strayed from their calling to be God's people, God does something really unusual. He orders Jeremiah to gather a group of people, a clan within the Israelites known as these Rechabites, and to bring them to the temple. And that's what we want to look at this morning in Jeremiah chapter 35. We're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 5, and it says this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habizaniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord and into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Masaiah, the son of Shalem, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. So Jeremiah invites this group of Jews, known as the Rechabites, to the temple, the most holy place in Israel, for a wine-tasting party. And he pours out these large pitchers of wine and fills their cups, and he sits them around this table, and he says, drink away, <laughs> enjoy. Uh, this has to be one of the most socially awkward moments found in the Bible because everybody knows that the Rechabites don't drink wine. They never touch alcohol. And so the con story continues in verses 6 through 11. But they answered, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. So these Rechabites protest to Jeremiah, there's no way we can honor your request, your command, and drink this wine. Because that would violate the command that was given to us by our forefather, Jonadab, who said to us, none of my descendants will ever let alcohol touch their lips. Forever, he said. It's interesting, in addition to not drinking alcohol, these Rechabites were also commanded not to farm at all. They were not to plant any vineyards. In other words, they were not to be agriculturalists. And they were also commanded not to build any houses, but to live like nomads in tents all their lives. 
And because of all of this, I think the Rechabites must have stood out like a sore thumb in Israelite society. They must have been real oddballs. People must have looked at them and go, are they even our Jewish brothers, really? Are they even related to us? I think a good comparison may be how we view the Amish today. A group of people who, whose practices and traditions are so peculiar that in all, for all intents and purposes, they no longer seem to fit in the broader American society, do they? Back in the 90s, um, I actually did some work as a doctor in Decatur, central Illinois. And when I was doing that work there, uh, pr- pretty regularly, these Amish, local Amish, would come to seek medical help there. And whenever they would come, it would be literally like I felt I was going back in time, you know? Um, you smelled the farm before they ever entered the room. You know, you could smell the farm on them. And then when they came in, their clothing was just so interesting, you know? Because, you know, usually when you're at the doctor's, you have to disrobe. And so, you know, you see these guys, and you're looking at their pants, and they have no zippers, you know, they have no buttons or anything. You don't even know how to undress them as you're looking at how they're dressed. I felt like I was on some set of a Little House on the Prairie episode or something like that, right? It's just, it was such a bizarre experience. And I think that's exactly how the Rechabites were perceived by the Jews. In fact, the only reason why they were in Jerusalem, they say, is because of the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians that were at the gates attacking them. And so they said, we were just forced out of extreme situation to come and seek shelter here in the city. Otherwise, we would not even be here because this is against what our father told us to do. You can imagine what that scene was, must have been like the day that the Rechabites all marched into the city walls. I, I think everyone must have been whispering at the marketplace and say, wow, do you see the Rechabites are here? They actually entered our city, maybe for the first time ever. And then you can imagine the talk. These guys are so weird, you know. They smell funny, they dress funny, they look funny. And by coming into the city, I think it's actually interesting. The Rechabites displayed some wisdom in keeping their vows before God. They could have stayed outside the city and frankly been massacred by the Babylonians, but they understood that preserving life was more important than honoring this commandment to live a nomadic life. And so out of that extreme circumstance, they actually broke one of their vows and came into Jerusalem for protection because of the invading Babylonian armies. It must have been incredibly difficult for the Rechabites to say no to Jeremiah that day. The the pressure to at least take a sip of wine for nothing other than politeness must have been coming at them from so many directions. The, The first, I think, is simple social pressure. For one, the command to drink the wine came from none other than Jeremiah himself. And although the The populace that generally didn't really respect Jeremiah, these were devout Jews. They were faithful. And I think they would have seen Jeremiah as a holy man, as a servant of God, a person with some standing in their eyes. So it was none other than a prophet of God telling them, commanding them to drink this wine. Not only that, but they were in the most holy place, the temple of God in Jerusalem, when that command was given to them. Not only that, but they were probably, by by indication of the way the story unfolds, they must have been surrounded by a crowd of witnesses, even temple officials, who were all gathered to see what in the world was going on there when Jeremiah was setting up these big pitchers of wine and hosting this party there for these Rechabites. 
And so to refuse this request would have been incredibly difficult from no, nothing, nothing more than just a social pressure issue. But it's not only that. I think rationalization was another struggle that they must have gone through. As I said just a moment ago, they had already violated one of their vows to their forefather Jonadab by coming into the city and living inside its walls rather than being nomadic. And they could have actually, I think, easily rationalized having a drink of wine. They could have said, listen, these are extraordinary times. And so at least for a season, we're going to put our vows on hold. And we're living in the city now, and so since we're living with these city dwellers, these wine drinkers, why not just live like they live? I mean, we've already broken one of our vows. Is it really that big a deal if we break all the others, at least for a season, out of necessity? You know, it's one thing to live as a separatist when you live in tents as nomads outside the city and the countryside, but it must have been really hard to live in these stringent rules when you live as neighbors to these people that are house dwellers and wine drinkers. Some of the Rechabites might have even questioned why they had to do this in the first place because Jonadab was alive 250 years earlier than the days of Jeremiah. It would be like us following some rule that was given to us by a relative that lived in George Washington's days. you know. And, I, and it's kind of interesting to think, why did Jonadab even do this? Why did he insist on this? Because you don't see any of this in the laws of Moses. This wasn't any kind of general command. The other Jews all drank wine. They all built houses for themselves. And so for these Rechabites, they might have been wondering, I don't even understand the rationale for these commands. Why can't we drink wine? Why can't we live in houses? Whatever the circumstances were that caused our forefather to make these rules, 250 years later, maybe things have changed. Maybe these things aren't so important for us in our generation anymore. What would be the big deal about building a house for ourselves? Because I'm sick of living in tents, you know? I want a squatty potty. You know? I, want, I, want, I want to be able to go somewhere where I can actually take a bath in private and not be in the wilderness all the time. What harm is an occasional glass of wine going to do for us? I think the last temptation here that I would draw to your attention is the attractiveness of the forbidden. The attractiveness of the forbidden. I think we shouldn't discount the nature of the human heart to crave that which we're told we cannot have. Now that we're living in the city, the Rechabites must have thought, they must have gotten exposure to a lot of wine drinking. You know, again, if you live as separatists in your own communities, you don't really have to deal with that temptation, do you? But when you live with everybody else, and they're your neighbors now, I think suddenly you get exposed to all of these temptations that you never had to deal with before. They must have seen other Jews drinking wine, and they must have seen the effects of that wine. I imagine they saw people get buzzed, and maybe even a little drunk. And maybe, I don't know, maybe this is just being a little too imaginative, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Rechabites had some thoughts like that, you know? Man, my neighbor is usually so uptight and unfriendly. But after he puts away a few drinks, he becomes so happy <laughs> and friendly and relaxed. You know, how bad could wine be if that's what it does to a person? 
And I wonder what it tastes like. I've never tasted it even. I bet it's sweet. I I bet it tastes awesome. (laughs) It looks so refreshing right now. A big bowl of wine in front of me. So, like Eve in the Garden of Eden, eyeing the forbidden fruit, I wonder if there were any Rechabites that were looking at these awesome bowls of wine (laughs) standing in front of them and encouraged by God's own prophet to say, drink, this is for you, enjoy, have a treat, relax, it's okay. To at least have a sip of this forbidden fruit. So how do the Rechabites respond? Did they exercise one of these loopholes to take advantage of it and diffuse the whole awkwardness of the situation and finally take a drink of the wine? Not at all. Verse 35, chapter 35, verse 6, it says, But they answered, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons, forever. They said, Jeremiah, this is a non-negotiable for us. This is not an option. And so with unwavering obedience, they replied to Jeremiah that they would not touch the wine, no matter what he said. They didn't rationalize their way to give in to the temptation and give themselves permission to drink it or succumb to the social pressure that was bearing down on them. And if there was any actual sensual temptation from the wine, they didn't show it. None of these reasons was strong enough to negate the simple fact that they were commanded by their forefather never to let wine touch their lips. And so they obeyed. They obeyed. To the Rechabites, it was a matter of simple obedience. Now here's the thing. God knew that the Rechabites would not drink this wine. And I think that is precisely why he invited them to do so. I would say also, if all God wanted to do was test the Rechabites for their own edification, he could have done so in a private setting. He could have said, Jeremiah, invite these Rechabites to your house and serve them some wine. But I think it was very intentional by God to choose such a public setting as the temple to give them this test because God wanted to use the Rechabites as a living example to the other Jews to teach them a lesson that day. And the question is, what exactly is the lesson that God wanted to teach them? Because actually, there have been historically a lot of temperance movements that love Jeremiah 35 and have tried to use this as a biblical argument against drinking alcohol. I don't think that argument holds a lot of water, though, because if you look at the whole witness of Scripture, it's pretty difficult to make that the argument that God is saying Christians or Jews in the Old Testament days were never to drink alcohol. I think the lesson is actually a bit different than that, and we can find it in verses 12 to 19, the rest of the chapter here in Jeremiah 35. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord. 
The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds. And do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the sons of, son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. So what's the point that God is making through the example of the Rechabites? The Rechabites stood as these odd misfits in Jewish society, but it wasn't because of the way that they dressed or the tents that they lived in or even the fact that they were teetotalers in a wine-drinking society. I think from God's perspective, as he looked at the Rechabites, he says, what makes these people stand out among all of you, what distinguishes them and makes them unique is simply the fact that they obeyed their father when you guys refused to obey me. It was an issue of obedience. God contrasts their obedience with the disobedience of his own children, despite speaking persistently to them of what he asked of them, they simply stubbornly refused to obey his command. So I want to start with this first teaching point, and I'm only going to really make two of them today. At the core of God's message to his people is a call for a response, a, a responsive and an obedient heart. This word, listen, is one of the key words in this passage. It occurs over and over and over again where God says, you did not listen to me. You did not listen to what I had told you to do. And I want to say this. Obedience is not a natural posture of a grown adult. It really isn't. It is of a child, isn't it? And I think the truth is for most of us, we've gotten so far from childhood that we sort of forgot what those days are like when you're a kid. Because the truth is, you have no human rights, okay? You are literally like property, you know? Do you remember those days when you had no freedom? You could never do anything. You were always told what to do. Uh, children have to ask permission for everything, right? In the classroom, you have to raise your hand. You can't even go to bathroom on your own, right? Your bladder may be ready to explode, and you ask the teacher, can I use the bathroom? And you say, Sally, you just went to the bathroom two hours ago. Stay in your seat and go at lunchtime. The kid's squirming in their seat. It's like torture. But that's how we treat kids. You, know? you give them one hour on their iPad every day. <laughs> you yank it from them. They're screaming bloody murder. They're throwing a kissy fit and kicking. But sorry, iPad time is done for the day. 
too bad. You don't want to go to sleep? I don't really care if you don't want to go to sleep. You're going to sleep at 7.30, right? While the sun is still bright outside, <laughs> right? And, you know, you become an adult, and you get away from all of that, right? You are the final authority on your life. Can you imagine if you had to ask for permission every time you wanted to use the bathroom at work? You know, <laughs> Tell your boss, I really got to go. Hey, no. You get a break at 1 o'clock, okay? You get two minutes to use the bathroom. Hold it till then, right? I mean, if that's what happens at work, you better find another job, right? As adults, you watch as much Netflix as you want, right? Your kids get one hour. You binge for eight hours, right? No one questions you. What I'm saying is this is just the attitude of the adult heart, is I'm not a kid. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me what to do. I can decide these things for myself. But what is unique, I would say, about the Christian message is to say you are not the ultimate authority on your life, even if you are an adult. There is a higher authority that is over us that we're called to submit to. And the truth is that is not an easy message to accept for any of us. Listen, I'm a grown adult. I know how to live my own life. I know how to make choices for myself. I don't need someone to tell me what to do. And what God's word would say, you actually really do. You really do. Because the truth is, you don't often make the best choices for your life. You often will go astray if you are the highest authority over your life. You need the voice of God to speak into your life and show you how you ought to live. And the second point that I want to do to kind of flesh this out a little bit, the second teaching point I want to make is simply this. Over the course of our life, God will give us personal convictions regarding obedience to help us grow spiritually. Over the course of our life, what I'm arguing is that for each of us uniquely, God is going to reveal, I believe, specific convictions that are not going to be the same for all of us and may be unique to you about the particular ways that obedience is going to look in your life. The main focus of this passage is not abstaining from alcohol, but to remain faithful to the convictions that God has given us. It's interesting that there is no prohibition to drink alcohol, and yet for that very reason of abstaining from alcohol, God honored them, right? He actually honored it. He didn't say, oh, you legalistic Jews saying don't drink alcohol. When did I ever say that? God doesn't say that, actually. He says, you have kept the faith in this thing that your forefather asked you to do. And so that's why in verses 18 to 19 it says, but to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, he says at the end of it, he says, Rechab shall never lack a man to stand before me. God honored their faithfulness. He didn't shoot it down. Now I want to say this. There is no cookie cutter model that I could lift up to you to say this is the ideal Christian life that all of us ought to model after and pattern our lives around. Because I'm going to argue it's going to look different for each one of us. I want you to just think about the example of the contrast between John the Baptist who lived an incredibly austere life 
of self-denial in the desert and Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, who actually stumbled a lot of people because he attended parties where there were, quote, sinners there. Two men living in the exact same time, in the exact same culture, with radically different lifestyles. And yet both of them were considered righteous in the eyes of God. I think that is telling in that whatever we're going to call the Christian life may not look the same for all of us, and yet there is something to be said about obedience to God in the life that we are individually living before him about what righteousness looks like. As we journey with God in this Christian life, in other words, I believe God will give us personal convictions on the way that he desire us to live our lives. We do have freedom in Christ, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't care how we live our lives and that out of our freedom, we just do whatever we want to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What is Paul saying? He's saying, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers me, I no longer have to worry about living a righteous life in order to prove my worthiness to God. That is tremendous freedom that Christ gives us as his righteousness given to us. But even in that righteousness that we receive from Christ as a free gift, Paul makes the argument, but that doesn't mean that anything I do in this freedom is good for me. There are other issues at stake. And so I have to be cautious about the kind of life that I live before God in the freedom that I experience through Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was this 18th century pastor and theologian who was one of the key figures in this great revival that happened in the early 1700s known as the First Great Awakening. Okay? And beginning in his teenage years, he began to write what he called resolutions, or what we could call personal convictions, about what the life of holiness meant to him personally. Okay? These were not rules that he mandated to his church and pressed on other people, but he just said, in my own personal walk with God, these are resolutions he has given to me to live before him. And by the end of his life, there were 70 of them. He would read this list every single day, every single week, at least once through. I just want to share with you a handful of these resolutions to give you an idea of the kind of things that he had committed himself to for his own personal growth. Resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. <laughs> That's a great one, isn't it? says, if I wouldn't do this thing in the last hour of my life, then I'm never going to do it. Resolved to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am. And when I encounter sin in others, I will feel, at least in my own mind and heart, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses or failings as others. I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility in myself. I will use awareness of their sinfulness and weakness 
only as an occasion to confess my own sins to God. Isn't that incredible? It says, every time I see the sin or failure of someone else, rather than judging them, I'm going to turn it inwardly to say, there but by the grace of God go I, and use it as an opportunity for my own personal repentance. Okay? In other words, it's taking all of that self-righteousness, all of that kind of judgy attitude, and he just reflects it on himself, and it leads him to personal repentance. Resolved, never to speak evil of anyone, except if it is necessary for some real good. Okay? If there's no edifying reason for it, I'm just committing myself never to speak ill of anyone else. Resolved, to cast away anything I find that diminishes my assurance of God's love and grace. I love that one. Whatever the train of thought leads me to, whatever I'm meditating on, if somehow it doesn't pass the litmus test that does this make me glory in God's grace and love more, I'm going to discard that thought, (laughs) right? Because that's not the gospel. Resolved, to study the scripture so steadily and so constantly and so frequently that it becomes evident, even obvious to myself that my knowledge of them has grown. <laughs> he's not just committing himself to reading the Bible and studying. He's saying, I want to study it so deeply that if the growth I'm experiencing it from it is not obvious, I'm not really studying scripture, okay, is what he's saying. Resolved, never consider something a prayer nor to let pass for a prayer any petition that when making, I cannot actually hope that God will answer, nor offer as a confession anything which I cannot hope God will accept. What he's saying is, there's a lot of things that look like prayer, but are not prayer. If I don't actually utter these words to God and believe that God is going to answer, it's not prayer. And so he says, that becomes a test for me, that whatever I ask of God, is it accompanied, is it accompanied, by the faith and belief that God is going to answer. Last one I'll share with you is this. After afflictions, resolved, after afflictions to inquire in what ways I am now the better for having experienced them. What good have I received by them? What benefits and insights do I now have because of them? What he's saying is, every time I go through suffering, I want to turn it into a life lesson that God is trying to teach me. And so what is it that God is trying to teach me through any suffering that I am going through? I I think this is a wonderful picture of what obedience looks like lived out in action. And I want to say this. I believe that through prayer and through the reading of the Bible, the Holy Spirit may prompt you to make certain commitments to God as a matter of personal conviction. And what I want to say about that is really important. These are not universal laws that you can push on other people and impose on them. But that should not mean that we treat them lightly or abandon them at the moment that they become inconvenient to us. What I'm saying is there is a difference between talking hypothetically about the Christian life and actually living it out in the presence of God in which we are receiving personal convictions about the kind of life that he wills for us. 
of what it means to live faithfully and righteously in His presence. What it means to obey the voice of our Father. Let let me just give you one example in the form of materialism. The Bible does give us general guidelines about how we should handle our money. But I'm going to argue that even within those general guidelines, it becomes really tricky to try to nail down some kind of universal standard regarding materialism that we can implement as an entire church. It is really hard. How much should an ICC member be allowed to spend on a car? How much can you pay for a new house? How much should you spend on a family vacation? or your children's extracurricular activity? I can't answer these questions for you, even as your pastor, for the whole church. But that doesn't mean there isn't an answer for you personally that God wants to convict in your life. Because the truth is, each of us are in a unique financial situation. And so our standard of giving and spending and saving and, and, and helping others and, and giving toward missions and all this, I believe if you truly are a disciple of Jesus and you really are on that path of obedience following him, then God will reveal that to you, what that will mean for your life personally. And what I worry is this, is the truth is I don't know if many of us are on a journey like that where we are really laying our life before the altar of God and saying, what would you have me do? What does obedience with my money, with my time, with my energies, with all of my resources look like before you, God? I just want to challenge you. What kind of television shows do you watch? I was, listen, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to stand before you here and say I don't watch rated R movies and things like that. I do. But I'll tell you this. is just last week I was watching this show and within five minutes, the level of violence was so horrendous. And I realized how easily I can get into the zone out mode where I just literally watch people's heads exploding and things like that. And I thought, like, this is really messed up. And I actually turned off the TV and I said, I should not be watching this. I think we're living in a day and an age where those kind of filters are not very strong even in the church, is it? Right? whether we're talking about Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or whatever. It's just, we're just taking it all in. And I wonder, is there anything you would watch on the screen anymore that would say, I don't think I should be seeing this. I don't know how good this is for my spiritual growth and for you to actually shut it off. Again, I understand that anytime we start talking like this, this creeping feeling of legalism starts to sneak up on us. Say, boy, are you trying to set a standard for what I can watch and what I can't watch on television? I really believe it has to be a matter of personal conscience that you bring before the Lord. And if you really do that with a sincerity and a humility that says the greatest voice of authority on my life is not going to be me. It's going to be God's voice that I invite to challenge everything I do, all the choices I make, all the decisions I make, whether it's about my money or my entertainment choices or my children or everything, it's all laid on the altar. I want to obey based on the convictions that you give to me, God, through your word, through your Holy Spirit. I believe God will do that work 
in our life. The only problem I see is that for too many of us, we don't live with this kind of intimacy with God, with these personal convictions. We are a very non-committal generation, and so we don't want to make commitments like that because if you say you're going to turn off the TV when you watch that, then what about the next show that everyone is raving about? You realize I'm not going to be able to watch that either. And we don't like the inconvenience that these kind of commitments will bring on our life. But I think we need to realize that we don't have to necessarily say it's legalistic to say there are ways in which God wants to nurture us and protect us and guide us that requires obedience in our life if we really are going to live a life that can be described as flourishing, thriving, righteous. Ultimately, I think this is a matter of faith. We obey because we believe that God knows better than what we do, than we do for what is best in our lives. Proverbs 4.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I think ultimately this life of obedience is a life of faith that says, I believe that God intends for my good. He is not just the stealer of my joy. He's not just someone that's trying to rob me of the things that I think would really make me happy. But it's to say, this life that God invites me to is the best life because he is wiser than I am. And frankly, some things that I feel drawn to and choices that I'm going to make are not for my good. I become my own worst enemy. And so I want to submit to what God's plan is, what his purpose are for me, not because I feel like I have to, but because I want to, because of the good that is going to come out of these choices, because God's wisdom is greater than my wisdom. God's good is greater than my good. He always wills everything for my good. And that's simply the challenge that I want to lay before all of us here this morning. Are you walking this walk of obedience? Or do you pretty much use your freedom in Christ as a freedom to do pretty much whatever you want. You know, it's interesting. We looked at it at the beginning of our series, but God describes the life apart from him as like a wild vine growing out of control. It's a very powerful picture of the wayward life. It's like a weed, a vine that's growing with no purpose, no fruit. It's just like a weed that has no function, no meaning. And he talks about this life of righteousness as one that is rooted in him, dwelling with him, being fed by him and being led by him under his leadership. I want to say that as a pastor of this church, much of the counseling one-on-one that I get involved with is precisely this dynamic that I'm preaching about today of us thinking we know better than God and wandering away from the life that he wills for us and pretty much choosing our own path and reaping often some really destructive consequences as a result of it. And I just want to challenge you with that this morning. Are you living a life that could be described as a life of obedience, a life of surrender that says that the ultimate authority over my life is God? I've given it all to his leadership. Let him shepherd me and show me the way of what he desires in my life. Let's pray. If I could just invite you to a moment of brief reflection as we get ready to come to the Lord's table.
and take from the bread and take from the cup. I just want to invite you to spend a little time reflecting on your own life. This stage of life of adulthood is very tricky, isn't it? Because we aren't children anymore. We, we don't have to listen to our parents or, frankly, any other authority, our teachers. We can choose for ourselves, you know? And that, that's, that's, that's an important part of adult life, is we get to make our own decisions. But I think sometimes we give ourselves too much credit to think that just because we are adults, we know what the best decisions are in our life. And I think there's something very almost humiliating about that message, isn't it? To say, we need a shepherd. We need a greater voice of authority in our life. But that's the posture of humility that I believe every one of us are invited to, is, Lord, you lead me. You show me the way. I need you. I need your leadership in my life. And maybe there are some areas of brokenness that you're experiencing right now as you look at your life and say, I feel like I'm reaping some of the consequences of choices that I've made. And I realize that under my own leadership, I don't know the way that's best for me. Maybe this could be a place of acknowledging that brokenness and acknowledging your need for him and just coming before God and saying, God, help me. Help me to understand your ways. And give to me that humble heart of obedience to follow what you're showing me that I need to do in my life. Would you just pray that for a few minutes? And our worship team is going to lead us into a time of uh, song of response before we go into the communion. Let's pray.